Welcome to episode 253 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name's Noah, and with me today, we have Jill, Ryan, and Michael. And of course, just off camera, but piped directly in is our interactive Jitsi room and our glorious community of fact-checking, ego-busting patrons. On this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're excited to speak with Scott McCarty of Red Hat and about their latest release, plus our tips, tricks, and software picks, all this coming up right now on Destination Linux. In our community feedback this week, we got an email from Steve, and he says, I've been listening to your show for quite some time. I originally found you through Jupiter Broadcasting set of shows. Uh, shout out to Chris if you want to check out. We did a crossover thing with Jupiter Broadcasting. I have links in the show notes if you want to check out that stuff, because that, really, that was really fun. And Steve also says, I run a fully Linux-powered Dungeons & Dragons game with the help of Foundry, a self-hosted online game map tool, Jitsi, and Nextcloud to help store player sheets and handouts and all that sort of stuff. I'm curious, have any of the hosts played D&D before? Now, this is really interesting because there, uh, D&D is a, a thing that, if you're not familiar, it's Dungeons & Dragons, and it's very common around the uh, geek space, the nerd culture, and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Ryan, have you ever... Uh, play D and D. So when I was growing up, I had friends that played D and D, but my parents wouldn't allow us to play D and D because you know demons and all of that stuff. So they were like, "No, you're not going to play that." So my brother ended up creating his own game, actually, that was very similar to D and D, but without all of the kind of demon monster things. He had just it was basically the same thing, but with that's cool an alternative <laughs> cool. storyline. To yeah. make it so that, you know, it would fall within uh, my parents acceptable. And it became a big hit in the city and all through our church and stuff. And people were playing it and we would play it from like Fridays until it would go through like Sunday with only a couple hours of sleep in between and just tons wow. of snacks and fun. And the imagination that you can build playing these types of games is just, it's incredible. And I have several people on my team that I work with that are grown adults still playing D&D, &D, still have their D&D &D <laughs> friends coming over every weekend, just like when they were kids. So it's never stopped for them. They've been able to keep this tradition up all the way through adulthood, which I think is really cool. And then, of course, Stranger Things brought this into a, I think, more into the spotlight because you started to see D&D &D, like fade from the shelves, at least I personally did in my area where it wasn't in stores or anything. Then Stranger Things came out on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And one of the big premises there is the characters played Dungeons and Dragons. And then all of a sudden I saw Dungeons and Dragons at GameStops and Target and Walmart and everywhere <laughs> again. So you could finally get a hold of it. So I think it's really cool because we're starting to see D&D &D come back in a big way. And in fact, we have a D&D &D DLN group that started that people can get into because we're, we're looking to start hosting. More accurate, this. it's called DNDLN. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. Because, yeah. you know. Uh, so I, I, I want to transition over to Jill because I think Jill may have heard of this. No before. way. May yeah. have. <laughs> so Jill, what is your D&D story? Yeah. So I actually started playing D&D &D when it came out in the, in the 1970s. Of course. Yes. M much, <laughs> much to my parents' chagrin, me and my brother had to kind of, you know, sneak off to the arcade that hosted some D&D <laughs> campaigns. You had similar parents to mine, Jill. Yeah. They didn't want you playing. Yeah. And then I went on uh, to play at several uh, sci-fi conventions over the years. And actually, in the last few years, I've played and co-hosted a few online campaigns using Roll20 on Twitch. 
That's which cool. is, uh, yeah, which is uh, uh, another alternative to the one that uh, Steve was using. And uh, so that that was a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit this. So I've even done some LARPing in the past. Oh, <laughs> no, Jill. Oh, no. <laughs> so, Jill, I went to a conference. Um, people may have heard of it here in Atlanta. What is it called? Dragon? <laughs> Dragon, Dragon Con. Con. Dragon, Dragon Con. Con. I went to Dragon Con. And we were promoting my <laughs> brother's game, of all things, actually. So we went with costumes and everything there. Well, I'm walking down, you know, but to stay at a desk to kind of sell the game and things, it wasn't for, but we're, we're standing in this line to get in one of the conferences and somebody throws this thing at me and he's like missile or something. And he's like, oh, magic you guys missile. The, I don't know. It was like magic missile. Or something. <laughs> he's like, hey, are you guys into LARPing? I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? I had no idea. And then I looked it up and I wouldn't admit it to anybody, but it looks fun. I mean, I wouldn't admit to anybody I play it, but. It looks like it well, could be fun. Well, I've I have done a larping before. I didn't know what I was doing until it was already <laughs> started. Uh, yeah. because a friend of mine took me to this uh I don't know some kind of of a comic book store and there was a larping thing happening there and I didn't even know what was going on. And someone started talking to me asking questions and I was like, "Oh, is this some kind of character thing?" <laughs> so on the fly, I, I created some character, and it, it turns out it, it worked pretty good, apparently. Uh, so that was my introduction to LARPing. My friend took me to a LARPing thing and didn't tell me. So that was oh. <laughs> that was an, in an interesting Would experience. Would you have gone if he did tell you? Your friend knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. Okay. the only way to get you to go to LARP. Uh, on, probably not. I I'll probably would not would have done it. And but I also I'm glad I did because it was it yeah. was fun and it was magic missile. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the thing about D and D is it's, it's funny because when this was first introduced, like uh, put on the show, and Ryan said we're going to talk about D and D, I was like, uh, okay, I've never played D and D. Uh, I've never really looked into D. Give me your geek card. You're uh, done. No, You're out of here. Okay, you haven't either. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, you did play your like your your brother made your own version of D and D, so that's right. kind of cheating. <laughs> and I want to play that too, by the way. Uh, but the the D and D thing, I've always wanted to play it, but I've never had the opportunity to really play it. So uh, I kind of want to put it out to the community if we could do some kind of like like I made the D and D LN room on Matrix as kind of yeah. like a a fun joke to talk about because people wanted to talk about it. I was like, sure, I'll make a room for it. Uh, but I also want to do it. So if we know any, like, if there's any dungeon masters in the community who want to help make this happen, I would like to play D and D. I would like to watch you live stream you playing yes. D and D. Yes. And I also <laughs> want to live stream it. Absolutely, hundred percent. So it's so embarrassing. I cannot wait. I can't wait too. That sounds awesome. In the embarrassing It'll be so way. much fun. <laughs> This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point your app platform to the GitHub or GitLab repository of your choice and let it do all of the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, 
All of this is supported by the app platform, and just by pointing it to your GitHub or GitLab repository, it will handle pretty much everything for you. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than in other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a Destination Linux listener and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. This week on the show, we are joined by Scott McCarty. The Scott is a principal product manager for Red Hat. Scott, welcome mm-hmm. to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so excited. There's a lot of exciting things happening in the enterprise space for the past year, just to say the least. So we wanted to have you on to break it down for us about what's happening. But before we get into the details about that stuff, it's tradition around here that we learn a little bit about our guests. So what is your personal journey into Linux? So tell us about how you ended up working for Red Hat. How did you get started in Linux in general? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that's uh, thanks for having me and uh, happy to go into that. So I started in like 1998. I was, uh, I was in college and this is the funniest story in the universe, but my friend Chad Ramesh, one of my best friends from college, he basically, I got this brand new laptop, this K62 AMD laptop. It was a Compaq 1135. I still remember it because you know how you remember that stuff when you're, it's like your first <laughs> piece of hardware. And I was in love with this thing. Like I wanted to show it to everyone. I just thought it was the most, it was the most amazing thing in the universe. I think I had Windows 98 on it and and I show it to my friend Chad. I go, dude, check this laptop out. It's awesome. And I like bring it to dinner. Like that's how crazy I was about this laptop. And he goes, he goes, I mean, it's cool, but he's like, why don't you put Linux on it? And I was like, Lin- yeah. Lin- what? I was like, what did what word did you just say? I didn't. I've never even heard of the word. I was like, Lin- Linux. I was like, what is this? And I was so infuriated. Like, so I fancied myself like knowing all the cool stuff like more than my friend Chad. So this like really wounded me. And I was like, I was like, I will know more about this than you. And I like swore to myself. And then like the next six months was complete and utter chaos where I would disconnect the modem, call him on the phone. This is like at your house because this is way before, you know, cell phones. I'd be like, dude, it's doing X Windows, blah, 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 something with this config. And he'd be like, dude, that's this, blah, blah, blah. And so like we went back and forth like 42 million phone calls in between like connecting to the internet. I finally had the video working and finally got it connecting to the internet. And that was the beginning. I was hooked after that. That was like six months of pain. And I was writing Pac-Man games and programming on it and doing all my computer science homework on it. And then fast forward like uh, however many years, what was it, 2011. So fast forward like 13 years. I had been a sysadmin for a long time. I'd worked at a bunch of different places and uh, had at that point become pretty like a typical senior sysadmin type type person, um, but did a lot of automation and uh, had programmed a decent amount. And I ended up working at Red Hat. I changed from being a sysadmin to being a solutions architect. So I got into sales. So I changed jobs, changed companies. I was completely over my head and I was like, oh, I have to learn. I don't know how to do any of this. And uh, within a couple of years, I was I was loving it. And um, here we are now, 10 years later, I was going to show my, because this has been a special year. So my 10 year my ten-year Red Hat puck Aww. I got recently. Nice. And, okay, so uh, I, I, ha- I have to ask. <laughs> I have to ask. Are you still friends with Chad? And is the oh, competition yeah. still going? And have you learned more about Linux than him? <laughs> <laughs> 
that is a good question. I have to. I mean, this is public, so I don't. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good Chad, if you're question. listening, do I know more the than him? I don't the know. Has been laid down. <laughs> I think it's possible. I'm now more in tune with what's going on than he is because he's moved more into being a developer. I know if you get into certain spheres like Ruby and stuff like that, he knows way more than me. But I would say probably like the, I mean, obviously now I'm the product manager for Rel Server, so like. I think I'm deeper in the actual like day-to-day Linux stuff than he probably is. So just curious on that, how did you, you know, what was it? You talked about having like, uh, and I think you were just throwing an arbitrary number out there, but three to six months of pain of trying to get drivers and everything set up. But what was it about that? That sounds like a terrible process to most people that made you go, hey, I want to stick with this thing and I'm still going to learn it. And then you even said, and then I fell in love with it, even going through all of that. What was it about? Linux at the time that drove it was it just the competition with your friend or was it something else? It was partially that, but but I have to admit this is something I think. So I've been in sales, I've been in marketing, I've been a product manager, I've been an engineer, I've done a lot of these roles, and I think the one thing that a lot of people get wrong is they think that oh it has to be easier for someone to love it, and that's not necessarily the case. Like I'd argue, I'd argue Linux took over. It was a bottom up, you know. I mean, it was us. It was people like you and me that like just started using it and building it and doing everything from scratch. It wasn't top-down CEOs and, you know, uh, executives and Silicon Valley money that created it, right? Like, the the idea was not to make it easier. It was to make it better. Like, it could be more stable and, you know, uh, run faster and things like that, more, more secure. But it wasn't necessarily to be easier. And so for me, I don't know, especially at the time in that age, I didn't really care how hard it was. I just, I mean, everything was hard. You know, you're learning to program, you're learning Dijkstra's algorithm. Yeah. And curiosity, honestly, like just curiosity. I was like, oh, what is this thing? This is cool. And the other thing was at the time, like Windows, you, you, I mean, th- people don't remember back then, but like you had to buy Sun like manuals. They were like a thousand dollars or something. They were like some crazy amount of money. I'm like, I don't know. I don't have money for any of this. So, you know, you're like, oh, this stuff's all free. So it didn't really matter how hard it was. It was just the fact that you could actually learn it. And I was always intrigued by understanding. You know, I, at the time, I think John Carmack was one of my idols, and I, I was always messing with video game stuff and trying to understand stuff about processors, and I was doing assembly language programming. It's like hard didn't... I liked the obscure at the time, I think, is what it was. Nice. Based on the release notes of 8.5, there's a clear focus from Red Hat on an ability to meet this hybrid and multi-cloud environment for its customers. And this is interesting to me when I was going through the notes because so much in the past years has been all about pushing everything to the cloud. And now I'm starting to hear so much from uh, the companies that are doing this stuff like Red Hat on more of a hybrid approach. And I was curious, why are businesses shifting away from the pure cloud kind of dream that everybody was shooting out there? And then how is RHEL kind of helping companies enable this move in this hybrid environment? Yeah, this is where I'll turn on my my product manager hat and I will actually speak more like how I, you know, how we think. But mm-hmm. so I I would argue and I think collectively at Red Hat we've known this for like years and years and years. If if you go back to like hardware I call it hardware 1.0 was like Dell, IBM, HP. So back in the day, you know, I was a sysadmin, we had DL380s, we had R710s or R700 Dell servers. And when you looked at like RHEL for example on those three hardware platforms, it was bulletproof. But and and at the time you know, all of those different hardware vendors were always trying to sell you extra stuff. They were trying to sell you weird backup software and software to manage the ILOs and things like that. And they were always trying to climb up the software stack. And some of them also sold software like HP and IBM, but Dell was still mostly a hardware company at the time. 
you look at that model and it was the, the idea is that you you wanted to always protect yourself in case the hardware vendor was like, oh, this this these people are raising their prices. I'll just move to IBM hardware. I'll just move from IBM right. to HP or Dell. And 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 Intel was behind it all, which created the standard, which was great. But um, but but you always wanted to protect yourself, and it was obvious. And so I call that hardware one That's when you bought it and like put it in your data center. I'd say Red Hat's known hardware 2.0 was coming. It was just a matter of time. But it's the typical like wave of technology adoption where people are like, oh, we're going to go all in with one cloud provider. And and I've had customers tell me that. And they're like, we're just going in with one cloud provider. That's the only way to do this. We're not going to fart around with trying to do two different cloud providers. And 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 I just sit back quietly and say, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, but deep down inside, I know that the pendulum swings back. I mean, you always want to protect yourself. And as soon as, as soon as three to five more years go by, you look at your cloud spend and you go, oh my gosh, this is crazy. We're spending like three times as what, or five times or 10 times. There's months. I heard about the worst scenario at an insurance company. They spent like $50,000 by mistake, like in the cloud, just like just a 50 grand. We forgot it on for a couple of weeks. We didn't know it was on and it was a big environment and we thought we shut it down, but we didn't and it was 50 grand and the guy didn't get fired. Oops. It's just, yeah. Huh. Oops. I mean, by the way, I hear this happening all the time. Like there are news stories of people getting 50, 100,000 plus bills from cloud providers because they leave something on that they're not supposed to. Now, a lot of times when it hits the news, the cloud provider will come in and say, oh, you know, we'll go ahead and forgive it this time or whatever, because they don't want <laughs> probably other companies to think about that. But it but it is an issue. And you mentioned something really interesting about the one source for moving all of your stuff to say one cloud server provider there. Because I know I had a friend that worked at Google who was in the hardware side and they would do something very similar. Even when AMD CPUs, nobody wanted them. Google would buy half of the products from AMD and half from Intel because they didn't want one to be um, so much bigger than the other that they could raise the prices on them and then they're stuck without competition. So even in the business realm, they kind of want to balance out that competition. It sounds like your suggestion from a product standpoint is that companies kind of do the same thing then, right? Yeah, so so here's the interesting. So the story always goes like this. They go, they, and I, I, that's an excellent example. And actually, I remember that, but I'd forgotten that too. So you bring up a perfect example within a single cloud provider. Even they care about protecting themselves, right, and making sure that they have dual supply. This is basic. Like, like if you go back to like building large, complex things like airplanes. There's all these like ISO standards on supply chain. And you like, for example, if you're buying bolts, like Boeing has all these rules on, they have to have multiple suppliers when they buy bolts and parts and things like that. You always have to have multiple suppliers so that you don't get, you know, you don't get one, one could cut you off and then you're in really deep, deep doo doo or, or just one starts raising the price on you and blah, blah. So you said, you mentioned Google did that. doesn't surprise me at all because they're very good at that supply chain piece of it. You climb up the stack one more layer and instead of buying the hardware, I'm renting it as a, you know, from cloud providers, right? I call that hardware 2.0. Now, now then the story goes, they go, oh, well, why would we standardize on Red Hat? We want to make sure we have two different Linux providers. I'd argue that's where it actually gets different because there are things like in the past sent to us and now Alma Linux and Rocky and and even in OpenShift, you get higher up the stack and go to like an OpenShift, there's OKD. So like if Red Hat makes you mad, you just go use OKD. And and then you go up even higher. I, I'll get this with Kubernetes. People say, well, we don't want to use the built-in things that are extra within OpenShift. And I'm like, all you have to do is use OKD and OKD is open source. And I mean, literally like Red Hat's not going to change the license of that. I mean, that's never happened in the history of, of Red Hat. We're never going to do that. That's just not what we're going to do. And so like worst case scenario, you got mad at us and you're like, screw Red Hat. I'm just going to go use OKD and we'll support ourselves or we'll pay some company to support ourselves. Like 
as soon as you get into the open source software layer, in my opinion, you're more protected. But when you go below that, the cloud provider, the hardware, you have to have multiple sources or else you're going to be in, they're going to have leverage over you and, and unfair leverage, you know. The fact that you are open and honest with your customers that, hey, everything we do is open source. We're not trying to vend you, vendor lock you in here is precisely why I would trust you as a company to begin with. Um, Scott, I want to talk a little bit about managing these hybrid environments. So with cloud and edge and on-premise deployment, all of that can be a challenge. Obviously, this is where Red Hat does bring some extra value in. Talk a little bit about what Red Hat does to help customers manage this infrastructure. Yeah. So, I mean, we do a lot. I mean, we do all the things we did again in hardware 1.0. So I'd argue all those things still matter, like performance, testing, making sure the stuff is dialed in with certain workloads and they just work well. Um, security, obviously, I would argue still to this day, we have better metadata than anybody on the planet from a, from a security perspective. There's nobody that produces as much metadata as we do. And so like we make it we both make it easy and hard, difficult for like any kind of scanners to look at our stuff because they have to use all that metadata and understand what's going on, but, but we do provide it. So it's interesting. I think a lot of people will look at a, a piece of software and go, oh, there's no CVEs, must be fine. And you're like, nah, that's not exactly what that means. It just means there might not be any metadata tracking that, that, that software. And I see that argument being made all the time, which is very irrational. Um, but so performance security are the two main things, you know, still in the cloud. Um, obviously ease of installation, just like we always did. But then you go another layer, I'd argue, like what you're probably digging for is more like things like like Red Hat Insights, I think are tremendously more value in the in the cloud. You look at you look at there really are differences between the cloud providers and when things can break and why. I mean a perfect example was that that uh, that latest Microsoft Azure uh, bug. Uh, it, it was it was a weird name. It was a funny name, you know, all these CVEs. But it was the one where they basically had a a backdoor daemon that was running that you, they could manage the system. And uh, basically, we used insights to basically be able to deploy update, you know, basically make recommendations and quickly get out, you know, like essentially a patch um, right as the CVE was being announced. It was one of those ones that was, I, I don't remember all the details of it. It was pretty nasty, but it was like, there was all these race conditions about when people found out and when we could patch it. And it was a, it was a people were working over the weekend at Red Hat kind of thing. And uh, we ended up fixing it pretty quickly for all Red Hat customers on Azure. Uh, but like a lot of the other Linux distributions was like, I mean, you're just going to have to like get yum updates at some point or, or, or you know, apt get updates or figure out what to do. Um, and, and actually, that was the worst part. You, I don't think you could actually do an apt get update because it was actually delivered um, out of band. So like it wasn't even part of the Linux distributions uh, software. It was like actually like it was from Microsoft. And it was like embedded. So you had to like make changes to the config to like fix it in some weird way. So you could like block it or, or, or mitigate it. But uh those kinds of things are, I'd argue, where like RHEL and Red Hat really, and, and even OpenShift really like accelerate or like really, really do well in those like multi-cloud environments. Um, another place I'd, I'd answer that question is a layer above where like when you look at like OpenShift and the way it actually manages RHEL CoreOS as part of the platform, that's a place where it gets really exciting where you go, okay, I log into the control plane, my Kubernetes control plane, which yes, has an extension. Um, there's a web interface in OpenShift. I want to scale up the cluster. I scale it up. More CoreOS nodes fire up in Amazon or Azure or wherever you have OpenShift running. Like being able to manage the the hardware, you know, virtual hardware control plane from that from that you know container platform control plane gets really um, 
that's a place where we where I would say like we're really shining, and and even Rel Eight Five in general just has a lot of that built into like those kinds of things built into insights and built into Rel, um, and a lot of a lot of uh, another place I point out is probably around like system roles and things like that where we're like really trying to be opinionated and show people how to run things. Uh, the right way and the right pl- like if you're running you all created pops. like four new system roles I think it is some of them are like if I recall SQL system roles and very specific things so that's essentially from a security standpoint your ability to get people working on the things in there in that system role that they need to but not able to touch anything else to break stuff and so you guys are constantly kind of enhancing those right yeah and those are very opinionated places where I think that's what people want from us. They want Red Hat to be opinionated. Go work with SAP. Go work with Microsoft SQL Server team. But you know, work with the big software workload you know providers, and then basically become opinionated. And then the other beautiful part is when we have a system role, and we kind of like expose which knobs you should tune, or or not necessarily you, maybe you shouldn't tune. We then make it easier to then do upgrades. So if you look like the Leap tool. You know, if I know that only these things have changed in the system role, and I and, and I can infer from like what's been configured on the system, I, it's a lot easier to do upgrades without breaking things when you kind of know which knobs have been tuned. So you're starting to see even like the leap tool and the upgrades for like some of those known workloads become easier and easier, which is again pretty useful in the cloud. Yeah, and also that leap tool is very cool because that's the thing that makes the the elevate project even possible, right? So like without the without that that structure, you wouldn't even be able to do those migration things. Or like I'm pretty sure the leap is involved in convert to rail, right? So that like there's a lot of cool stuff that that framework, where not talked about that much, makes it easy to transition from you know CentOS to rail and get started with like a full blown uh, experience. Yeah, that's what actually makes us able to like. So all those tools are kind of standardizing on that leap platform, although they're not all there yet. But um, but as we standardize on that, and then we're even looking at new things like uh, the ability to even make it easier to move from one Linux distro to another, not necessarily just an EL8 one, but we're actually looking at like even being able to move from like Ubuntu to RHEL or, uh, or from like wow. even Fedora to RHEL or whatever. I mean, any, any other Linux distro where we're actually looking at adding even more metadata, I would say stay tuned there, but we're definitely looking at how to do that even better, which is it, which is another barrier. Perfect example is when you're in a container and you're coming from like another a Debian-based distro, for example. You go to like you go to do your Docker file or container file, and you know we all know we all know the hell that is dependency hell. Like when you go to install something and you like it's like oh I need libso.irt. Blah, blah blah. It's something I've never even heard of. I'm like ah, I don't want to deal with this, and you have to like Google it all. We're we're actually even looking at ways that we might build it just like pretty much just automate that and pick the package for you and show you what package needs installed. So you're not like, as a sysadmin, Googling on the internet 40 times to figure out what each dependency is and then figure out what package to install. Because yeah. that's always you know, been annoying in Linux. A lot of our audience oh. will probably be confused by the term Googling. What he means is duck, duck going. So you... <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, perfect. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Scott, speaking of containers, uh, let's dig into container technology. You know, what are some of the new technologies or strategies surrounding container management and deployment? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So for those users that are not familiar, you know, like Red Hat started investing in something called Podman. Um, Dan Walsh and the team, Brent Bode, and I, I mean, there's a ton of people on our team, Matt Mihone and, and, and a whole bunch of people. But uh, we've been working really hard over the last four-ish years to like bring Podman to a place where I would say it's competitive in the market. I heard I heard a I heard a debate between some open source projects the other day, and the one person mentioned they're like, you know, if if you're never willing to go, kind of fork what's there and and do something new, 
um, and be a little competitive with something that already exists, like we'll never do anything cool, right? Like you've always got, at some point there's a little tension, but you've got to go do that. And I'd say that's what Podman was. We looked at like what Docker had done. We thought it was really cool. We thought we thought the image format was amazing. The way you can push back and forth to a registry is amazing. But the way the actual daemon was built was just suboptimal. Like it was, I jokingly call it the best proof of concept I've ever seen. Like it was awesome because you downloaded one piece of software and you could just type a single command, Docker run, yeah. and like things so would run. So easy to like, use. Oh. When I first saw that, I thought that was amazing. I mean, I thought that was the coolest thing I'd seen in like 15 years. Then when you get to know what it actually does and how it works and how the daemon is running as root and how it pulls images and when it pulls them, it automatically expands them. It does all these things that you're like, this wasn't designed from the ground up like with security in mind and with like... So what we did is we looked at how can we break these tools up and then run them in a fork exec model as opposed to a client server model. I would argue that like that web 2.0 world, that whole Silicon Valley world was obsessed with web services and they're like, oh, how can we build this Linux tool with web services? And it was pretty cool. But then you're like, wait a minute, we can make the the UX, the, the CLI, you know, the command line interface, we can make it almost identical to that, but we can make the backend architecture completely different such that that there's not as many security issues and then you can run it as a regular user, for example. Now we're at a point in 2021, almost 2022, where Podman out of the box just runs so smoothly. Like I remember when I'd first run it rootless, I run it as a regular user. I was like always scared. I'm like, eh, is this going to work? Is this going to break? <laughs> and I was doing some stuff with uh, what's called Kube uh, Play and Kube Generate, or I'm sorry, Podman Play and Podman Generate, where you can like generate Kubernetes files that you can then use awesome. in Kubernetes. So you can like run a couple containers in a pod locally, export a Kubernetes YAML, import it in Kubernetes, and it'll just play. And then vice versa, you can like run Kubernetes YAML files in Podman. Um, and we've been investing heavily in making that workflow transition like really smooth. That's where you guys are taking these tools and kind of bridging them together. Because you could take like, say, Podman and deploy straight to OpenShift. And then OpenShift is going to handle all of your kind of versioning and deployment and your zero downtime every time somebody's making changes to that application. So you guys are integrating all of these tools together. So it's kind of one package which is really neat to see. As we talk to customers, we know that the vast majority of users do not want to run Kubernetes on their desktop. I mean, there's there's definitely a small power user set that wants to, mm-hmm. but a lot of people just want to type yum install podman and be like, all right, cool, mm-hmm. I can, I can yeah. run this app. And then they want to hand, like you mentioned, HA and like clustering and all that stuff. I want to hand that off to some Kubernetes admin, like OpenShift admin. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that as a developer or as a user, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're dead on there. I think the the Podman stuff and the fact that like when I first found Docker, I was like, oh, this is super interesting, like you were talking about. And and when I realized that it was running everything as root, yeah, that kind of gave me a little bit of a <laughs> a, re, a, a, a cringe reaction on that. Uh, but uh, I wanted to kind of you know boil it down to a little bit because we're talking about the the containerization, the deployment factor, and the stuff like that. But we maybe we should talk about like what a container is in general because some people might not be aware of what the difference between a container is and maybe a virtual machine and these sorts of things. So could you break it down like what is a container? This is a this is a dangerous question to ask me. I don't know if you know my <laughs> my background with this topic, but uh 
I don't want to I don't want to intimidate users too much, but I can go into very disgustingly gross detail about what a container is at this point. But <laughs> at a high level, I will do the high level version for people that are, don't understand. So so when you run, I mean, I would argue when you install a piece of software with whether whatever it is, like whether it's Microsoft Windows or Linux, it's a package, right? Like and a package is nothing more than a file. It's a bunch of files. It's either a bunch of files compressed together in an archive of some kind or it's, you know, individual files. I mean, a binary itself is just a file. Like, you know, like you run a program and a program is basically made up of one or more binaries and that's just a file. And then when you look, you know, when you run it, when you actually execute it, it puts it into memory. It's being executed. You can see it running, blah, blah, blah. It's reserving memory on your computer. That's the basics. Like that's, that's still true with containers. I would argue a container image is just the package format of the software. And the beauty of that is it's just standardized. You can push it out to a registry. There's a standardized registry. A registry is nothing more than a fancy file server that has read-write access. And you can push these fancy you know, packages of software out to this packaging server. And then you can pull it down on a different server or a different laptop or desktop. And then when you load it into memory, it's just a process again, except that there's a standardized set of constraints within the Linux kernel that we put around it. So, so a container is just a fancy process. A container image is just a fancy file or a fancy software package. And a registry server is just a fancy file server. The main difference is we used POSIX files most of our history, and it wasn't quite enough, right? Like, like standardized file format wasn't quite enough to get us there. But when you package a bunch of files together, config files, the binaries, everything, the, all the dependencies together in one image and then have a standard for how you push that image. That's kind of what containers are. Now, a virtual machine had similar things, right? Like it had an, a VMDK file or a QCOW2 file. But the problem was, is there was no standard. Like you still have to push that out to a FTP server or something like that. Nobody's going to want to do that or push that to a web server over SSL or push it over SSH. There was like all these different ways you could do it. So there was like no standard. And then also to argue that like the... With a VM, you needed all of the dependencies, including the kernel, and so it just it just lended it lended itself to being really large files, like you know one, two, five, ten gigabyte files, and they were hard to compress. And it was just we had to learn from it. Now, I still think even in 2021, there's valid use case for a you know valid use cases for a virtual machine. I, they do offer more isolation. There's no way to argue that they're doing. You know, virtualization is basically uh, translation versus interpretation. A process, from a computer science perspective, a process is interpretation. People don't realize this, but like when you type a command in Linux, you're essentially typing it into the bash, you know, bash or some shell, and then the the kernel is interpreting that binary. Basically, it's going, oh, okay, I got to do this. There's like a header. It takes off that header. It knows where to load it in RAM. It does these things. Like it's interpreting that, and then and then that that binary runs directly on the hardware with virtualization, it's actually loading that thing into memory in a virtual machine, and then that's getting translated. So you can do things like run an ARM binary in a virtual machine for ARM on x86, and it actually does translate that. But people don't realize that we're we're just speeding up the translation when we do like x86 on x86. But it's it's still translate it's still translation from a computer science perspective. So it is more it is more insulation, but it's also less performance, right? Like containers are basically just just fancy processes. Nice way to put it. I like that. Rel's also very heavily invested in these technologies to the point I was reading something that said that they are the second largest contributor to Docker and Kubernetes code itself. So you guys are kind of basically taking a lot of resources as being the second biggest contributor out there 
to make sure these things fit the standards and things that I assume that you're wanting to build out for the future of these products, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you go back in the history, you know, back in the early days of Docker, Red Hat was a huge contributor. Kubernetes, Linux, Docker, Podman, like like Red Hat puts like tremendous contributions into that because we know that's how you essentially compete in the in the world of open source is you you the more you add, the more every dollar of contribution you give, you can get back twenty, thirty, fifty dollars of value. Um, because there's so many other people participating. And so it's just in my mind to this day, 2021, we have not changed our philosophy at all. It's it's always do everything upstream first, always uh, contribute upstream. There's no no open core. You could get me down that rat hole. I just wrote an article <laughs> on open core. But, uh, yeah, that's a fantastic point because I mean, like the the putting in one dollar, you get fifty back because of the way the open source works. When you are contributing with the entire ecosystem, everybody is helping back, and that's why a lot of people are seeing that now in different companies. And it's just another; it's a testament of how Red Hat has been this way for decades and continues to do it. And that's one of the reasons why we're fans of Red Hat and what their the work they've been doing. And also, there's even times where we don't even know that it's Red Hat until years later. That were involved in making something, and that is, and like for example, uh, like Flatpak. I I didn't even know how much Flat Red Hat was involved in creating Flatpak until like just this year, and and they're, they're like one of the critical, like the the guy who started it was a Red Hat employee. So like that is a significant amount of of value that Red Hat puts into it. Yeah, one my, one of my favorite stories around that was uh, OverlayFS. So OverlayFS was a Red Hatter, the guy that wrote it, and. I remember this a couple of years ago. I mean, and since then we've heavily leveraged overlay now that we think it's ready. But he, the the guy that wrote it, was saying this is not ready. People should not be using that. And people were starting to use it with Docker, and we're like, why are you doing this? And then, and then they would see people using it, and they go, well, they're using it. Why aren't you guys doing this? And I'm like, I don't even know how to handle this question. Like, what do I say? Like, it felt like gibberish. You're like, I don't know why I have to defend why we're not using something when the the guy that wrote it works for us and he says it's not time to use it and everybody else is using right. it. And then you're pressuring us that we're not using it even though like this makes no sense. This is irrational. Yeah, there's a lot of... that. That's probably happened four or five times in my 10 years at Red Hat where I have to like go around and do this dog and pony explain to people that it's not ready. Like we don't let it in rel until it's ready. And then when it's ready, then we rock and roll. But like we Red don't Hat's let so it in. big yeah. and it's so involved in so many different projects. I remember how... Um, I wonder how many times... You're sitting there going, "Hey, did we create this new thing that just came out? Does that does that happen a lot in Red Hat? <laughs> was this us? <laughs> was this us? Did we do this cool thing?" There, there's some interesting anecdotes around that. Sometimes I'll want to include something, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, who's contributing this?" I'm like, "Oh, okay, there's a couple of Red Hatters," and then I'll reach out to them. I go, "Okay, good, these guys are contributing or gals," and you're like, "Okay, cool." Um, yeah, you have to like, it's gotten big enough now that I don't know everyone. And so you have to like, kind of go research some of the things even internally and see who's contributing. And almost always, there's somebody from Red Hat contributing and I can get feedback. Uh, something that happened the other day was there's this SLSA standard for supply chain stuff that I was looking at. And I'm like, I'm like, Oh, this looks interesting. We need to dig into this. And then I talked to some of our guys in our product security. They're like, Oh, yeah, we're already working on that. I'm like, oh, all right, cool. Like, they already, they already <laughs> knew about it. And they were already working Perfect. on it. So let's zoom out a little bit and back out and let's talk about, we've talked about containers and the stuff that runs on servers. Let's talk about the servers themselves. So what is it about Red Hat, Red Hat specifically RHEL and your server strategy that stands out? What sets Red Hat apart from other companies in managing servers? If you're looking for a server software, why would you go with RHEL? Yeah, there's a bunch of reasons, but, um, and it depends, you know, I call it, I call it, um, you know, there's there's marginal utility. Like if you go back to economics and people are going to have different 
marginal utility. Some people are going to see a Red Hat subscription and, and understand all of the things that they already, you know, the reasons why they value it. Um, but 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 probably the some of the biggest ones, are the, probably the biggest reasons, a lot are around security. Things like, um, uh, you know, Stigs and and FIPS compliance and uh, life cycle is a huge one. Like our life cycle just dominates. I'd argue backporting is one of the most painful things in the world. Let's all be honest. But we do it pretty darn well. Like even though it's really painful, we figured out a way to do it for many, many, many years. Ten years, you know, for RHEL, thirteen with you know uh, twelve, thirteen, sometimes fifteen, depending on how long we run EOS at different versions of RHEL. Um, mm-hmm. That is really a differentiator in my mind in the market. Like where a lot of people cannot pull that off. A lot of a lot of vendors can't pull that off. They just don't have the resources to pull it off. It is painful. I'm not denying that it's painful to backport things. And there's people that even think it's the wrong way to do with Linux. But I can tell you right now from a customer's perspective, like if you're building a car at some large automotive company and you're like, oh, I need this Linux OS to go into this vehicle for how many years again? Oh, wait, maybe 20, maybe 30? How long? This is actually just, you know, you're actually highlighting something that I think is a, a major problem in the industry. I don't think we realize how much how long now Linux is at the place where we can really start to think there's going to be places where it needs to run for 30 years or, or maybe even 50. That's kind of terrifying. Like that's wow. like, you know, you start to talk about power generation plants and automobiles and things like that. And like ha- upgrading between versions, things like that. I'd argue all those things are places where, where rel shines really well. And, and, you know, historically we had, we had averted ourselves from the upgrade path because we thought the life cycle was long enough, but now we're starting to nail that too in addition to the life cycle. And so you have a lot of flexibility about which versions you go between and you have a crazy life cycle that you can like rely on for a long time. Um, I mentioned the security metadata, I would argue, is very important. The performance in the ecosystem. So here, here I, I kind of always think of it in three buckets, like performance, security, and the architecture, the way RHEL works are kind of the three main reasons people buy it. But, um, you know, around the architecture, I'd say is the third one. It's the only Linux that I've ever ran a yum update and I've never truly been burned. Like I have ran every <laughs> Linux distro on the planet and I run some update and I'm like, son of a, you know, and I'm like, and I'm in agony because I've gotten myself into this, some broken state where I can't, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it is so rare like that, that you actually yeah. get it to a place where it can't be fixed is so mm-hmm. rare. Well, I want to dive into the security because you mentioned that is one of the big three. And that's something that we talk about a lot on the show, very personally important to me as well. Security breaches, data being compromised, internal external sources, now government sponsored attacks. These are all threats facing every business out there. How is Red Hat navigating this disaster that's become the warfare online of security breaches and threats and privacy and all of that? Yeah, I mean, we've been... We've, you know, I mean, the first thing was we we saw Linux early and saw the security improvements and then doubled down. Um, but now 2021, you know, decades later, um, it's it, like you mentioned, it's it's a lot more of a dangerous world than it was. Um, even we are investing heavily in our supply chain security and making sure that we double, triple check everything in our supply chain and know how and why we're bringing software in. We're we have very good processes now about how we like add packages and why we add packages and how we review them. Um, there's a lot of process behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see with Red with Red Hat and and how we're careful and judicious about when and why we bring things into the the distro. You won't necessarily have every package you want, but the ones that are there are super reliable. And so and that's a that's a tough trade off, but that's one that we typically I think we do a pretty good job of making. Um, 
another place where I'd argue that we're like we're pretty different is like the a lot of people don't realize, but there are bottlenecks in the security chain, right? So like an example I bring up all the time is glibc, which is a perfect example both in containers and outside of containers for almost any binary that is, you know, even JVMs, for example, are compiled against glibc. And so you go, if there's a problem in glibc or the kernel, you're going to have big problems, right? Like, and so we pay extra, extra special care to the kernel in glibc because if we can bottleneck the, the, the choke point, you know, essentially a choke point where, where people can get into a system by paying extra special attention to certain packages, you know, that's, that's really good return on investment. So I'd say that's a place where we do a really good job, um, and and then and then looking again, climbing up the stack to things like insights, to where we can quickly make like operational changes and like notice, inform you that you've done something. Because let's be honest, once we hand it off to you, if you've made a different change, um, you know that is like sort of out of scope. Say you didn't do something that's in a system role, or you maybe changed it with a system role that, but but you still added some variable and you didn't realize. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize I I just lowered the the low port to. De- 22 and now I have a fake SSH server on my server, you know, who knows that some user spun up, um, you know, those kinds of things we, as like, as we like learn these ourselves, because we're always, all of us, I don't care who you are, what vendor, how much you know about Linux, how much you know about the world, we're constantly always learning. I would argue what Red Hat does a really good job of is, is systematizing, like, like, like bringing that knowledge into a system. So things like it was historically always like our knowledge base, the way we built the rel platform itself. And now I'd go a third step and say, it's like things like insights where we're able to like proactively notify you and say, Oh, we noticed that the system is configured this way or, or you haven't updated this package or, you know, this, this or that, or like in the Azure scenario where we were able to like, uh, proactively like notify users and like fix their system so that it couldn't be hacked by a demon that they didn't know was running in their system. And nobody knew actually, a lot of people didn't know. That's a really cool thing I want to talk about because the, the Red Hat Insights service is such an, like that is a, a by itself a thing to use, a reason to use Rail because it is so interesting and powerful to have a scanner tool to making sure that your uh, your operating system is running as intended or you know as optimal and that kind of thing and then when there's ever an issue it will notify you and tell you that there's something to be done and in some cases just do it for you which is just awesome yeah it's it's kind of the next evolution of like I you know it's the world of automation right it's what we had in our KB KB article all the time like we had a rule we've had a rule for the 10 years I've been at Red Hat that Every support ticket that we resolve, we, we we resolve with a KB article, a knowledge base article, so that like somebody else can find it and then hopefully fix their server themselves. That velocity is what like Red Hat sells in a nutshell. This is what people don't understand. Like, so so I, I wrote a six piece. I can share with you guys an article, but I wrote a six piece article on open source dot com where I talk about like as a product manager, where do I find differentiation from the upstream open source project? Um, you know, and the product is different than the project, and I try to explain that like. The product is something that you you feel good about paying for. You're like, oh, I want to pay for this. Like, I don't have to, but I want to. I would argue Insights is a perfect example of like differentiation for the upstream, where we're just collecting that data and then giving it to you in an easier way. It's not that you can't get. It's not that you can't do all that yourself. You can. It's just really like why waste all the time? And so like it just it gives you. You're like, okay, I understand why I pay Red Hat for this now. And so those are the places that like I really love those kinds of places where the differentiation feels good to pay for. You know, like you don't feel guilty paying. You're like, why would I pay for this? You know, but but you're like, oh, okay, and so okay, I can understand why I pay for that. And support yeah. obviously is an, a classic one, but we actually don't emphasize that. 
you've got people that'll say, oh, well, we haven't filed a support ticket. And you're like, okay, that doesn't mean you were getting, weren't getting value. That's like a false negative. You're right. Like, you're like, well, we never opened a support ticket. You're like, well, we fixed a whole bunch of things you didn't know that we fixed beforehand. <laughs> you know, like you didn't, exactly. so you didn't have to open the support ticket. We anticipated Aww. your needs. Yeah. People might be able to kind of get started in the server world or Linux and open source and learning this stuff more is through books, obviously. And you're in one. You've helped write a book. So tell us about that. Yeah, recently, Miguel, Pablo, and I wrote a book called Red Hat Enterprise Linux Aid Administration. Um, and actually, it is a really good book that goes into like the deeper parts of like, um, you know, a lot of the pieces that you would use in the Red Hat uh, Systems Administrator, uh, Certified Systems Administrator course or, uh, or certification. Um, and we try to cover things like tuning and kernel, how it boots, um, containers. I wrote the containers chapter. And uh, Pablo and Miguel did a lot of the work. I, I will fully admit they did most of the work, but uh, but it's really good. And and all of us have been at Red Hat for a long time and a long time. I mean, Pablo and Miguel used Linux even before me. I want to say I want to say early '90s. Both of them ended up kind of getting into Linux. So like this is written by people that like really know this stuff. And uh, and honestly, I'd also say one of the things with our book, if you if you if you if you want to use this book, you know we're always available. We're out on Twitter. We'd love answering questions. So I could say one of the special things you get with us is we actually want to help people. Very we actually cool. really love helping people. Very nice. Yeah, it's very cool. We'll definitely have a link in the show notes for people who want to check that out. You know, we have we've talked about Rail eight point five. We talked about containers, and Rail nine is coming fairly soon uh, next year, I think. And there's a lot. Of, the beta is already out, so I have uh, checked out what's coming in the, in the the next version of Rail. And there's a lot of cool stuff. I'm excited about it. I'm curious, what are some of the features that you are most excited that is coming in Rail nine and beyond? Yeah, I joke. So, so in the containers world, we joke that like Cryo is the one of the one of the features of Cryo is it's boring. Um, I would argue that like <laughs> Rel to an extent, one of its features is it should be boring. Like, like it should not be super interesting. Like, we don't want it to be too interesting. Like, so, so something that people don't realize. Um, when we launched Rel eight three years ago, we changed the entire model. So Rel, so I started in Rel. Well, I started in Red Hat five point two in like nineteen ninety eight ish. It was kind of like whenever it was ready, we sent it out the door. We were like, all right, this one's done. Let's go. Um, with RHEL 8, it was different. We decided, all right, three years from now, RHEL 9 is coming out. And when we launch RHEL 9 in May, in May-ish, or I should say spring, I don't exactly know if it'll be May. It could be late April. It could be May. But it's definitely going to be the spring, early summer. It's going to be almost exactly 36 months from the time we launched RHEL 8. That is a new thing for us. We've decided that there's a train and the train is leaving the station and we're going to launch the train and you get on or you don't get on, but it's going to be there. Um, that's a totally new model for Red Hat. And if you looked, every dot release, uh, you know, 8.1 was six months, 8.2 was six months, 8.3 was six months, 8.4. 8.5 and RHEL 9 beta, even though they were launched a couple days apart publicly, are actually the same launch. Like they are the same thing, basically. They're a different kernel, different system D, different, you know, the, the base OS channel in the two are different, but the AppStream channel is going to be pretty darn similar. Like I won't say it's identical because when you compile binaries on a different kernel with a different glibc and a different GCC and things like that, there's going to be some differences to the binaries. But if you look the exact same version, so like Podman 3, uh, 3.3 is going to be in both RHEL 8 and RHEL 9. Uh, you know, it, nine nine beta and rel eight five. It has the exact same versions of Podman. If you look at the PHP and Python and Ruby, they're all the same version. So all the stuff that we have in the AppStream, 
I'd argue it's kind of like two trains are kind of riding next to each other. One's ahead of the other one, but you can still, you know, there's cars hanging back and you can jump from car to car. And so, (laughs) you know, you should hear them clicking it about the same time, like click, 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 you know, and they're going to be kind of going there. I would argue like this is the first time we've ever made it this easy to upgrade. So, so when you, when you go from like rel eight, six or to rel, you could, you should be able to jump back and forth between rel eight, six and rel nine auto very easily. So the biggest excitement for me will probably be around uh, Podman 4.0 when you start to look at like what the Podman 4.x uh, will come out and it will be awesome. Like our, our API is getting really good. We're getting rid of, we have all kinds of cool features dropping um, in Podman to where the, the compatibility is really good. We're working on a new network stack um, for Podman. Uh, we're again making more and more. You'll, you'll see, especially in 9.0 GA and 8.6, which again have the same version of Podman, same features basically. Um, you'll see that we're, we're able to do all that stuff I mentioned around uh, replacing Docker Compose, where you'll be able to bring up an entire app with the Kubernetes YAML, shut the whole app down, bring it up. It'll build the images automatically. All that stuff will drop in, uh, in Podman 4.0, which should be in RHEL 8.6 and RHEL 9. Those are the things that will be really exciting to me. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I also wanted to talk about like you you mentioned how the Rail nine and eight point five are similar, and I ni- I did notice that. I didn't notice how much similar they were, but I did notice a lot of the stuff that was in one was also in the other. On the fly stuff like cockpit being able to do live kernel patching through the web console being ab- available in both of them. Like to have that connection between the two is like. I think game changing. And I think it's also because of the transition from CentOS Linux to being CentOS Stream, making it possible to do all that stuff. And that's why I'm excited about like enterprise is not a thing that I ever thought I would be excited about because it's not that kind of thing you would expect. But for the past year, there's so many things every couple of weeks, it seems like just big changes are happening that are good changes and in the enterprise world, you're like, I don't want you to change that much. But the way it's doing it, I think, is the, like very uh, clean approach. Yeah, the changes are like meta, right? Like, like in a certain way, like the leap program, right? Like it doesn't help you in day to day rel, but as soon as you need to upgrade, okay, now this is pretty amazing. Like, and, yeah. and that's a major thing you got to do in enterprise Linux, right? Is upgrade. So, I like the fact that I could check out a new kernel, a new system D, new glibc, new GCC but I still have the entire app stream be the same. So this concept of an app stream, application stream, and then a base OS channel just frees us up to be able to do these cool things, I think, you know, going forward. And then you're right. You mentioned something really exciting to me, and I forgot to mention it earlier. Is the, the CentOS 9 and the way that's been working, CentOS Stream 9, to me, has, been, has shown the world that we weren't crazy, one. Because everyone's like, what are you guys doing? Ah, you're crazy. Like, people were really... I mean, you know, you saw the reactions to the CentOS thing as well as I did. And, uh, and, and I think now when you... I, I watched a talk from the Alma Linux guys the other day, and I've watched some of the stuff from the Rocky guys and gals, and you go, they're starting to all see the... They're like, everyone's seeing the magic. They're like, oh... Now we get why you did this. And I'm like, yes. It was just we didn't market it well enough. I mean, in a nutshell. And, and, and so, you know, you're seeing it work, though, in RHEL 9. Like, RHEL 9 is the first release where you could actually see the release beforehand. 
and the beta dropped, mm -hmm. but the beta, if you were paying attention to CentOS 9, you already, or Stream 9, you kind of already knew what was going to be in the beta. So like, and then as GA drops, you're going to start to see the differences trickle in, you know, in CentOS Stream 9, and you'll kind of know it. This will be a lot easier for our partners and our upstream people that want to build on it and, and even our customers that are paying close attention. Like, they kind of just see the changes trickle in it, and it won't be exciting. It's less exciting when you know it's coming, which again, yeah. is kind of one of the, that's a feature, not a bug. Mm -hmm. Well, to be fair, though, I think a lot of the controversy wasn't the change. It was the way it was messaged. Yes. And I think once people had time to think it through, it kind of made a lot more sense. And then there were some changes that REL made as well with uh, licensing and things that opened up some doors that weren't there before. So I think there were some mistakes made. For sure. But ultimately, when you look at the end result, I think people were pretty happy with where it's landed. Put it that way. Yeah. And I think, I think the one big thing is like taking a step back, like... No one understands. Like they think everyone, the world, and in particular, the last couple of years, I wrote this six piece I mentioned, like product management and open source series on uh, on opensource.com. And uh, I don't, the one fundamental thing that I don't think people realize is we're all still learn. There's still stuff to be learned with open source. There has never been a Linux distribution as big as RHEL with both an upstream and downstream enterprise distributions, essentially, if you will. Like, like having, this is, we're still learning as well. Like that, that's actually the one more one thing I want to point out. It's like, everyone's like, you made these changes, blah, blah, what are you doing? I'm like, wait a minute, we're still learning this too. Like every, and I would argue this is the first time that we're seeing this happen at this scale. And even, even us, I would argue the way we message and everything, we're still learning. We're like, uh, you know, figuring out how to like do that. We won't do that again. I can tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but I do think that the vision and the architecture was right. I remember seeing seeing talks by Steph Walter, he's like, we need to make an upstream distro to RHEL because, and he showed this this presentation where he's like, it basically goes into a closed source box. Even though you don't really think of it that way, you can file BZs, but there were internal Git repos and, and repositories that nobody else on the planet had access to, and they couldn't actually submit changes. They could indirectly file a BZ and say, hey, this problem, but they couldn't actually help you build it. And and I again I don't think we knew that. Like nobody knew that. Like we just we just kinda like we're doing it the way we're always doing it. We didn't know. We set up something that seemed to make sense. And then like years later we were like, oh wait a minute, that could be made open to where you actually have a point where you can actually give inputs to that inner I call it the inner loop. You know, the outer loop is like Fedora. That one comes around every three years, and then the inner loop will come in every six months. And and now you've got this inner and outer loop. And I think when you look down the road three, six years when you see REL 10 and REL 11 come out, this is going to be awesome. Like by that point, it's going to be mm -hmm. a well-oiled machine that's going to be humming and and I'm going to be retired and rich is my plan. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> of cryptocurrency. Of cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. selling REL NFTs as we speak. No, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on Destination Linux to discuss the stuff that's happening over at Red Hat. And uh, we hope to have you back on the show real soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love it. It was fun. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, it provides you with multiple types of tools where you have a password vault to store all of your passwords in, a password generator so you can automatically create passwords on the fly when you need them, and also even automatically fill in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. Plus, it has access across many different types 
types of devices like web browsers, mobile apps, desktop application, and even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only one with access to your data. Unless you want to share it through like a family account or a business account, which is also available with Bitwarden. So you can share passwords through organizational vaults and that sort of thing. So if you want to help someone get started, whether it's in a business or whether it's your friends or family, you can do so with those accounts on Bitwarden by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because you can get started for less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you access to one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and just so much more. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your account. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. Would you like to explore the depth? the depths of an alien ocean, then the game Barotrauma is the game for you. Barotrauma is a 2D co-op survival horror submarine simulator inspired by games like FTL, otherwise known as Faster Than Light, RimWorld, Dwar- Dwarf Fortress, and Space Station 13. It's a sci-fi game that combines ragdoll physics and alien sea monsters with a teamwork and existential fear. Perfect. <laughs> well, is it just it's being a in a submarine, a horror simulator in itself? Yeah. I mean, to me, like, yeah. imagine just, you don't even have to talk about an alien ocean or anything else. <laughs> yeah. Just being yeah. in a submarine and going way deep underwater and <laughs> a missile-shaped thing. Def- definitely. I've, I've been in a submarine before, and it's creepy. <laughs> and you can, you know, hear your heart pounding and everything. I was in the one like at an Disney World. Chamber. <laughs> it was very creepy. We went like four feet underwater. Oh. <laughs> four feet, is, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> so the Barotrauma has over 13,000 view, very positive reviews and is very well liked and it's native on Linux. Yeah. And actually on Steam, the game describes itself like this. Barotrauma is a 2D co-op submarine simulator in space with several horror elements. Steer your submarine, give orders, fight monsters, fix leaks, operate machinery, man the guns, and craft items. And stay alert, danger in Barotrauma doesn't announce itself. Mm. (laughs) And one of the cool features I really liked is that you can build your own submarines and monsters with the in-game editors and share them with other players. So I had the idea that me, Ryan, and Noah need to craft our own Michael AI monsters to use against him. (laughs) I like that idea. (laughs) The monsters like constantly um, sitting on a stool or throw stools at you and things like that. I like that idea, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and what's really cool about this game, it has, you know, very dreamy visuals. And it really makes you feel like you're underwater in an alien ocean. And the the gradient colors are actually very cyberpunk inspired. So it has like a lots of lots of uh, beautiful cyberpunk uh, pinks and turquoise gradients, but with a, a darker tone. And the other cool thing is this is actually an early access game. And um, as such, the developers would love it if you could get involved in the development, giving them feedback and suggestions and getting started with mods. 
And as we know, mm-hmm. contributing to a project and giving great feedback is something that the Linux community does the best. Woo-hoo! Exactly right. We've even There've had even yeah, articles been, written about that. <laughs> yes. yeah. There's there's been reports from developer game developers themselves saying thanks to the yeah. Linux community that we they found like like eighty percent of the bugs they were found were thanks to the, the Linux community helping them out for stuff that wasn't even relevant. Trying to, to hack everything, yeah, yeah we, exactly. Well, of so we're. we want to fix all the bugs. Yeah, <laughs> if we if we want, we want to play a game to make it even better, so early access is like, yeah, just let us let us help. And the fact that there was even like there was, I was talking to someone about this kind of thing, and they said that that you know before they got into the open source community and before they got into, they didn't even think about this. They're paying to be QA testers and are okay with it. Mm. Awesome. So bear a trauma and enjoy the alien abyss in giving good uh, feedback. (laughs) Well, isn't there a lot of rumors of of the UFO sightings and stuff that all the aliens are living in the ocean? So I think this is brilliant for bear a trauma to come out with a game like this at the time where everybody's like suspect that if there are aliens and extraterrestrial, that's where they're living is down in the ocean. Maybe they know. Maybe they're sus. Maybe they're trying to tell us something. You'd have to play the game to know. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So earlier this week, uh, Ryan was looking for a potential spotlight to do to add for the show. And I was thinking, you know, maybe he could find something that's not ridiculous and not just meant to troll me. But uh, alas, that's not what happened. (laughs) Have you ever wanted an app that gives you quick and easy access to have gifts anywhere and everywhere so you can spam your friends in Matrix 2 like Ryan did with me? Well, that's <laughs> what Reactions is for. So it lets you search for gifts and easily copy and paste them wherever you need to do. So you can have, you search for reaction gifts provided by Giphy. You can drag and drop the images to whatever you want, whether it's in GIF or MP4 formats. And I, I know this is pretty straightforward for most of you because, you know, it's it, you know it's just a GIF application. So it makes sense. But let's just say you're a host of a podcast, you don't know, we'll, we'll call this host Ryan, and this podcast, we'll, <laughs> we'll call it Destination Linux, and let's say you were looking for this software to, you know, annoy your friend, and let's say your friend's name is Michael. And check, check, check. check yeah, this and, is amazing. And let's say you also use Element. Then you can use this application, Reactions, to do so endlessly, and you yes. can even do it with a flat pack, which makes it really easy to have access to. But so, you gotta, you got to admit that the gifts that I chose to spam you with endlessly, they were high quality gifts. They were high quality and they were yeah. pretty they were pretty perfect for the uh the act the act of spamming me. Yep. I, yeah. I have to say. Good this selections. Is a fun <laughs> tool to use. And if you miss like an element or something utilizing gifts or having access, or like I like to call them GIFs, send your email to Michael at <laughs> no. no. if you disagree Bad with Ryan. GIF. Um, Graphics interchange <laughs> format. Yes, exactly. GIF. GIF. Did I trigger people? <laughs> There's a couple of things that you want to mark on your calendar. The first, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern on December 13th, going to 9 a.m. on December 14th, our very own Matt from DLN Extend and GameSphere is going to be doing a 24-hour game stream for charity here. So we hope everyone in the community will mark those dates again, starting 9 a.m. Eastern, December 13th. We're going to be raising money for St. Jude Children's Hospital. Uh, there are also rumors that certain hosts like <laughs> Michael, me, Jill, yeah. might show up throughout this 24-hour <laughs> stream as well. 
to troll Matt because 100% I, all of us. Yes, I will be yes. there for yeah. sure to get him back for all the trolling he has done to my to me on yeah. my show and on this uh-huh. show on Twill and everything. Oh, it's Absolute, gonna be crazy. Can't wait. And also and for charity. Know. Also for charity. For charity. That's and why you guys, I'm going. <laughs> Michael and Ryan has to teach him how to game. Finally. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's so pathetic watching you know? him game compared to me, exactly. the master of video games. The master. You know, you're absolutely right. You should, you know what you should do? You should do a 72-hour game stream. <laughs> to oh. get back and show him who's really bad. Well, I'm just saying, since yeah. you're so good at gaming with all Throw your time. Throw down the gauntlet. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> the other item you might want to mark your calendars for is the Risk Five Summit, both in person if you're in San Francisco, California, or if you're not, they also have a virtual track that you can get a hold of. That's December 6th through the 8th. And Risk Five is the free and open instruction set architecture course that's a lot of hype in it right now. I think it would be really interesting to join this one. And Jill, this is kind of in your area. Yeah, you could, absolutely. You could make it here. You could go to Risk Five. You could stream to us live from Risk Five if yeah, you wanted to. That's cool. Um, I've been to other Risk Five events. So this, yeah. this is awesome. Nice. <laughs> so open collaboration, enabling freedom of design, all the cool things that Risk Five is doing, you can learn about there. Uh, the summit's about bringing the community together, show the power of open collaboration on the processor industry specifically. So kind of focusing on that hardware piece would be really cool. So check out that. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. And a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching, listening. However you do it, we love your faces. And if you want more DL, you can become a patron, like all the amazing people behind the scenes. You can't see them right now because they're behind the scenes in a 65,000 square foot virtual stadium. We had to shrink it a little bit because we just, we built it too big. So we shrunk it down to 65,000 square feet and they get things <laughs> like uh, unedited versions of the show that they can watch at any time. So if you can't catch us on Sunday, you can get that. They also have their own patron rooms and things to hang out after the shows. So consider becoming a patron. If you are available on Sunday, then at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And if you're annoyed by Ryan shrinking down the stadium and you want to get some more leg room, you can go to DLNstore.com and help us fund the expansion pack of the stadium by getting some swag and some t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks, aprons, so much stuff. Check it all out at DLNstore.com. And make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with the Fedora Podcast. So everyone head to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these great shows. And please don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everyone have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a good week, everyone. See you next week. And remember to thank Ryan for being a trooper and sticking with us even when he's sick. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, thank me. That's a good point, Jill. (laughs) I I reluctantly thank you, Ryan, for being here for this episode.